This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Racial segregation was rampant in the 1960s, and in Colorado, it was often against Hispanic people, even if they'd lived here since before Colorado was a state. And this wasn't just in big cities. In a tiny farming town in the San Luis Valley called Center, there were separate classrooms and rows at the movie theater, separate parts of town where people of color didn't buy houses. CPR's Nathaniel Minor delved into Center's history recently to hear how a small group of activists changed things. It was a combination of a lot of people saying, ya basta. Ya basta. Enough is enough. Self-liberation. Self-liberation. We are not going to be treated as as second-class citizens. I'm I'm old and I'm having trouble with words. And that we're going to be served with respect. I think to add to self-liberation is in what we all did with our children. We educated them. And they're not ever going to bow to any person that wants to put them down either. So that's a lot of progress. That was yesterday's show. Today, what happened when the powerless became powerful? Jenny Sanchez is the woman you just heard, who led a self-liberation movement in her small town in Colorado's San Luis Valley. One sunny morning several months ago, I took a drive with her through Center. We drive by rows of potato warehouses on the east side of town. Farming's big here. Beyond those, you can see Blanca Peak, one of the tallest 14ers in the state. Jenny's roots run deep in this small town of about 2,000 people. And that one in the corner is owned by my other brother. And that little house over there is where I I grew up. You could walk from one end of center to the other in about 20 minutes. But Jenny's 85 now, and she wants to show me every street in town. She's a petite woman with a short gray bob and gentle eyes. We pass modest one-story homes, the dollar store, a few small Mexican restaurants. There's still a grocery store downtown, which means people in center don't have to shop in nearby Alamosa quite as often. We cross the main drag in town, Worth Street, into West Center. She explains that she and her husband were the second Mexicano family ever to live on the west side of town. And all these homes were Anglo homes. They're all Mexican homes now. The transformation of Center over the past half century or so has been remarkable. And that's largely because of Jenny Sanchez and her friends. They call themselves Mexicanos, fighting for the people whose family histories run deeper here than the official state of Colorado. They fought to make wages fair and have political representation and a better education. Eventually, they took control of the town's most powerful positions. All of this is documented in a new book Jenny co-wrote, which is what drew me to her story. Jenny never ran for office herself. People in town use words like the monarch to describe her. She's like the boss of the new political machine, the one behind the scenes pulling the strings of power. It's what people say Jenny and her group have done with that power that made me dig deeper into Center's more recent past. No one I spoke with argued with the huge civil rights gains Jenny and her friends accomplished decades ago. But there are plenty of folks down there that have a problem with what they've done since. Everyone thinks there's a little bit of corruption up there, I think. This is a local attorney named Matt Hobbs, who has battled Jenny Sanchez in court. He told me that these days, Center has a reputation in the San Luis Valley for being corrupt. He contrasts it with other towns around. You know, Crestone has its personality of being sort of out there, sort of new agey, and Monta Vista is a more of a farming community, and Center has that reputation. And he says Jenny Sanchez's group is at the middle of it. It's 
just not normal in democracies for the same small group of people to be in power for so long. Take this one woman, Adeline Sanchez, who's close to Jenny. Adeline served as mayor for seven years in the late 80s and early 90s. Then she was mayor again for another eight years a few decades later. She was a town trustee in between there, too. To be clear, there have been a lot of trustees that have come and gone over the years. But there's this core group of about half a dozen people around Jenny. They've been on the town board, school board, and other positions of power at one time or another for a long, long time. And it's just not the town board or the mayor's office that Jenny's group has come to control. The local housing authority, the Head Start program, those have also been run, more or less for decades, by this same small group. And I started to understand what the attorney, Matt Hobbs, meant when I found out about this. Okay, well, like, talk to the chief, and I'm waiting for the D to call me, but you've already advised the proper, the proper way to do this. What you're doing right now is you're harassing them. Okay? So you're, I'm, I'm giving you one opportunity. I'm giving you one opportunity to get in your vehicle and to leave. This is body cam footage from just last summer. A police officer confronts a friend of Jenny's, Audrey Chavez, who runs the housing authority. Chavez is standing in front of a run-down row of trailers, some of the rental properties that she owns in town. If you don't get in your vehicle and leave, then you're going to be placed in custody for harassment. The officer had come up while Chavez was trying to evict some tenants. The cops didn't think she was doing it legally, even though Audrey says she was within her rights. The chief was Jim Gowan, and he was new to town. He's a veteran cop, spent 20 years in Pueblo, real law and order kind of guy. So he wrote up the incident. Audrey Chavez ended up facing criminal charges. And as soon as that happens, then things start getting a little more tense around the town with the political climate and the police department. It was in this moment that Jim Gowan realizes there's an established power structure and center, and he had just crossed it. At the first court hearing, Jenny Sanchez and Audrey's other allies stared down this new chief. I totally understand why they're doing it. They're not going to support their police department. They're supporting her and her way of doing business. Jenny Sanchez didn't just try to intimidate the chief in court. She tried to put him on the defense in the eyes of other people in town. Even though this seems totally unconnected to Audrey's situation, Jenny chose to exploit this thing she found out about, that Gowan's son had been caught trying to smuggle drugs into state prison. She made sure everyone knew about it. And I passed it around. I don't deny what I do, so they would know who that man was. Jenny doesn't deny her tactics, her attempts to protect her friend. She's still using the same sharp elbows she developed back in the 60s to stand up for what she thinks is right. This time it meant taking on the police chief. As for the chief, Gowan, he left center just a few months ago, after less than two years on the job. He says Jenny's digging played no part in that. He just didn't like the way the town was run. The average citizen in the town of Center, they're, they're just great, hardworking people. Unfortunately, you have a group, a select group in that town, who use the town for their own manipulative purposes. Gowan's not unique. Other well-regarded professionals have worked for Center only to leave after just a year or two. All this rumbling is part of the reason that a few people tried to unseat Jenny Sanchez's allies to take control of Center. And that's where the most serious allegations of malfeasance started to pop up. It was around 2004. The town was in bad financial shape, half a million dollars in debt. They were behind on maintenance. This was one of the times when Adeline Sanchez was mayor and some of Jenny's other allies served on the board. Adeline chalks it up to the board getting bad reports from town employees. 
the board members that sat on the board and even the mayor didn't didn't have the skills, you know, the accounting skills to know all these things. Either way, the town was in trouble. And since Adeline and Jenny and the same small group had been in power for decades, more or less, they naturally got the blame, especially when Adeline and the board raised utility rates to try to make up some money. Residents got really upset. And that created an opening for a new opposition, led by a woman who had conviction and her own strong ideas about how to make things better in town. Susan Banning grew up in Colorado. She's a school teacher. She taught in inner city schools in Denver and Texas, mostly minority kids. She landed in the San Luis Valley in the early 90s because she wanted to be closer to home. Center was a good fit because it was like, these are the type of students that I can dedicate time to and see them grow. Banning talks about her students like a mother talks about her children. It's clear she loves them. And so she invested herself in Center. She collected clothes and toiletries for migrant workers. She stayed out of town politics until one day when a colleague at the school approached her. Julio Paez grew up in Center. He was a young guy, and he wanted to try to fix some of the problems he saw in town. But he needed help, so he convinced Banning to run with him. She's a very smart person, very intelligent person. They wanted the same things, like to fix up the town's infrastructure. The power system needed an upgrade. The wires are too close, and so they were always snapping in the wind. And electricity would go out. And it would go out five, six, seven times a day. The town needed a new water tower. It was all the town acquired when it was used in the 70s. And this water tower, this was a big deal. Water keeps the town viable. Without water, we have no center. We have no jobs. So Julio, Susan, and another candidate on their side campaign. They think, hey, it's a long shot. But on election night, she got that improbable phone call. They'd won. And this new group got to work quickly, especially when Susan Banning became mayor a few years later. That was like heaven. Heavenly, to get stuff done that had gotten run down, like the new power transformer. The ribbon cutting was fabulous. Have not had an outage due to wind since. Next up was the water tower, the lifeblood to center that was extremely outdated. Jenny Sanchez's group said they had their own plan for a new water tower, which would cost a lot less. In fact, they thought Susan and Julio would put the town into debt they couldn't climb out of. This water tower became a symbol of the conflict between these two groups. The previous insurance company that we had before Sursa dropped us. The topic at this particular town meeting was insurance. Julio Paez was saying that the town had been in so many lawsuits, it was having a hard time keeping itself covered. I, I was on the board, and I remember... Jenny is in the front row, watching. We had a heck of a time finding somebody who will cover the town because of the town's past history with lawsuits. And then Jenny gets up. So, I, I, I want to talk. Can I finish this? I want to talk. Can I finish? I you, will, talk. you will talk. You I will talk, talk. But I, I need I to finish. Talk. I need to finish, ma'am. I want to talk. You will get your turn to talk. And then Jenny really lets them have it, pointing her finger straight at Susan Banning. Because you have not been professional. You have not run a good city council. You have not representing the people. I asked Jenny why she was so opposed to Susan and Julio. It seemed like, fundamentally, they wanted similar things to make the town better. 
And Jenny says, no, that's not right. She says even today, decades after Mexicanos and their allies took control in town, the opposition she faces is all about race. It was very, very, very racist. That's despite the fact that of Jenny's four opponents in this dispute, two of them are Hispanic, including Julio Paez. But Jenny and her group say Julio is controlled by Susan and other powerful Anglos. Adeline Sanchez explained it to me this way. Julio went to school here, came here as a young child. Julio was not well accepted in that school, but he was an easy target. And he proved that. Adeline says his allegiance and that of other Hispanics who don't agree with Jenny's side have been bought even though Julio says he had to convince Susan Banning to run for town board in the first place. He told me Susan wasn't pulling the strings at all. They just happened to agree on most things. The racial undertones aren't just felt on Jenny's side, though. Susan felt from the beginning like her whiteness made her an outsider, despite her work at school and in the community, and even though she'd partnered with a native son of center in the campaign. It started when she bought a house in town to move closer to the school where she taught. I bought my house that's over on Corona Court, was the only Anglo in my entire block, and people who I'd had their children. She taught their kids in school. But it was almost the idea that, you know, you're in the wrong part of town. You know, you should have bought a house over here where um, some of the other Anglos live. That's why when Julio Paez asked her to run for town board, that's why she balked at first. I did this. I pointed to my head and did Anglo, white girl, you know, because the board was Hispanic. There, there weren't white people on the board, and there hadn't been. Jenny and the others fought for years to give Hispanics the right to make decisions for themselves. And now some were making decisions that they didn't like. Susan says things got personally nasty, and not just at town meetings. She says she got harassed. I've had nails in my driveway. Um, my car's been egged. It's been keyed. I've been insulted and um, told that I need to leave town. I've had a machete put into my yard. My house has been broken into. All since she got into town government. And she filed reports, which the police looked into, but they didn't find enough to take the cases very far. Jenny and her friends told me they didn't know anything about the incidents, let alone have any involvement. But Jenny's side did take their opposition to Susan up a notch. They wanted Susan Banning and the others on the board recalled. No waiting around until the next election. They had to go now. That recall quickly turned vicious and would end up in the state Supreme Court. This place was home to some really blatant racial discrimination back in the 60s and 70s. Separate sides of town for whites and Hispanics. Separate classrooms and sections at the movie theater. And if you missed the first part of the story, check out yesterday's show. A group of Hispanics, they called themselves Mexicanos, they took power and then held on to it for decades. The same small group of people until they started to lose it in the 2000s. And that's when they started this recall petition. A new mayor had come in, Susan Banning. And the small group, who'd been in charge for decades, didn't like the new direction. So they targeted Banning to recall her and her allies, like Julio Paez. 
Well, Julio heard about it first, and he told me. And it was, well, I shouldn't have been amazed, but I was amazed. Jenny Sanchez, as always, was behind the scenes. Well, I would say that she's the mastermind. She's the person who formulates the plan. Um, And then her designated people follow the plan. In Jenny's mind, it was necessary for the town's future. Why do a recall? That seems kind of like an extreme tactic. If I had had the power, I would be the first one circulating a petition to get rid of Trump. The damage that he is doing, and nobody's going to tell me that's not happening, was exactly what was happening here. Every time they took over, it was to destroy anything that would help us. Jenny's side won the recall. They booted Susan and most of her board from their seats. But some people still question the results. And it's when I looked into this election that I heard the most intriguing allegations of corruption about this town. And when I learned it has a reputation for it in the San Luis Valley. Understanding whether it happened is key to understanding what Jenny and her friends have done with power once they got it. In this recall election in 2013, and in another election five years earlier, people accused Jenny Sanchez's allies of intimidating voters. Matt Hobbs was the attorney in that earlier case, hired by Jenny's political opponents, including Susan Banning and Julio Paez. The attorney looked for evidence of intimidation. So we sent a couple private investigators out and knocked, had them knock on all the doors of, of people who submitted uh, absentee ballots. The absentee ballots were central to his theory, which went like this. Jenny Sanchez's group still controlled things like the Housing Authority and the Head Start program. They held those public benefits over people's heads by going to voters' houses and telling them how to fill out their ballots. The voting numbers supported the theory. Jenny Sanchez's candidates did disproportionately well with absentee voters. They overwhelmingly went to this other slate of candidates. Again, these were allegations, but Hobbs's clients were convinced that Jenny Sanchez's group twisted arms, extorted people to keep themselves in power. There were some pretty wild accusations. I was floored when he first described them to me. You're alleging some pretty crazy things here, and you're saying the, the co-conspirator is a 75-year-old Hispanic grandmother. Yeah, it, it sounds crazy. You meet her and you think she's the sweetest lady ever. Yeah, she comes off as very awful, but... Uh, she's tough. The private investigators found a handful of people who said they were told how to vote. But Hobbs needed these people to come forward publicly for the lawsuit. You know, we went back to get their story again and potentially have them testify in court, and it it changed. No proof. The lawsuit settled out of court. The town had to pay legal fees for the case, but didn't admit anything was actually wrong with the way the election went down. In the 2013 lawsuit, which alleged similar things, the plaintiffs got a little bit closer but they still couldn't prove intimidation affected how people voted. That lawsuit went to the state Supreme Court, and they ruled in Jenny's favor. So there wasn't enough evidence of voter intimidation to convince a judge or the seven Supreme Court justices. But on the other hand, the recall was fishy enough to get attention from Colorado's Secretary of State's office. Staffers went down to center to recount the recall. Again, they didn't find anything to compel law enforcement to file criminal charges. But Suzanne Steyert, the Deputy Secretary of State, says what she did learn down there was startling. She heard about the allegations of intimidation from the school superintendent and other town leaders that she trusted. That's not a 
free or fair election. Uh, that's an election that is, you know, what we would think of in some third world dictatorship where they claim to have a free and fair election. But Steyert says her office couldn't do much. She says they don't have any oversight authority in municipal elections. Jenny says her group is still very involved in elections. They organize and visit voters' homes. But she says there's no intimidation. We don't have to do that. Everybody already has a list of the people they're in contact with. And then you go and say, this is coming, this is what we represent. And, and you know, we don't have any trouble getting people to vote. Still, it was notable to me that a state elections official would be so critical. I took that seriously. So I looked for people who used to live in public housing. My thought was they'd be free to tell me their story. I got a list of every registered voter in Center from 2013, which had names and addresses. Then I compared that to the addresses of public housing units in town. And I ended up with about 20 names of voters who lived in public housing. I did the same thing for people that lived in private rentals owned by someone on Jenny's side. And I just started calling these people. Most of the numbers were dead or wrong, or the person who answered the phone didn't want to talk. And then I got to Jennifer Quintana. She says she lived in a center housing authority apartment for 11 years. Her kids went to Head Start. So I asked her, were you ever told how to vote? No, I've never seen anything like that. No. They've never told me that anyway. I can say it did happen or it didn't happen, but they never told me anything like that. Quintana says Jenny's ally, Audrey Chavez, could be a mean landlord. Quintana didn't get her damage deposit back. But she was never told how to vote. I'd love to find more people like Jennifer, but I couldn't get a list of current or past residents because of privacy concerns. So this is what we're left with. The phrase I heard more than once was, there's a lot of smoke, there must be fire. But no one's been able to prove anything. Jenny's group took control of Center's government again after the recall. Over the past few years, they put up a new water tower. More electrical work is planned, too. And Susan, the mayor they recalled, is out of local politics these days. She's kept teaching at the school, despite the nails she says were thrown in her driveway, despite the nasty disagreements at town meetings. She says it's her students that keep her motivated. I could do this anywhere, but um, my heart is in Center. With the kids and the parents of Center who work really, really hard to put potatoes on people's plates and lettuce, and they deserve um, an advocate. And that's what I do. I advocate for them. Susan's ally, Julio Paez, who also works at the school, he's out of town government now, too. He's more diplomatic than Susan. Despite how nasty things got against him personally, he's deferential to what Jenny Sanchez and her friends accomplished long before he was born. I cannot imagine what they went through in the 60s and the 70s, all that discrimination. Despite the recall and the contentious public meetings, he says he'll still wave at them if he sees them on the street. But he says in some ways, Jenny and the others never let go of that fight from decades ago. They went through something so awful that maybe they're afraid it might happen again. If they let it, they're afraid that, you know, we might go back to the past. Pius thinks Center is ready to move on. He says there's still racism and it should be confronted. But the way Pius wants to do that is to treat everyone the same. 
uh, it's great that you fought for civil rights, but um, that doesn't make it your town. You know, this town belongs to everybody, whether you're Chicano, Hispanic, Mexican-American, Anglo, white, African-American, whatever it might be, this town belongs to everybody. The recall was a scarring experience for the town. It was extremely divisive. The town has had trouble just getting people to run for election lately. One person in Jenny's group, this woman Mary McClure, admitted some of that may be their fault, and it might not be a great thing for center. I suspect that because we have had such a such a active past, I mean, it's, there's been a lot of turmoil and stuff, that I think that, that does scare some people from from stepping up. Remember, Jenny Sanchez is in her 80s. A lot of her allies are nearing the ends of their careers, too. It's not clear who the next leaders of center will be. The last election was supposed to be earlier this year, but it was canceled because only four people applied for the four open seats. Jenny says they're a victim of their own successes. Their kids all got good educations and left the valley. The cream of the crop is gone. And I think that's a drawback in rural communities. I mean, I think that's the case all over. In that last election, one reason people didn't sign up to run may have been that they did, but they were too late. The public notices put out didn't have a deadline for candidates. The local paper reported later that some people were turned away. So instead of an election, four familiar names were appointed to the board. Adeline Sanchez, Mary McClure, and two other members of Jenny's core group. When I talked to Jenny Sanchez about her activism over all those years, finding candidates, causing a ruckus at public meetings, fighting to keep her own people in town hall, she usually comes back to one point. It's all about self-liberation. It's all about being free to make decisions for yourself. And to do that, they needed to elect Mexicanos and their allies to positions of power. Most everyone I spoke with agreed that it was the right approach during Center's blatantly racist past. There was a clear goal and a clear need to accomplish it. But that was a long time ago. And if their methods haven't changed much over the years, their political opponents certainly have. From people like Bob Felmley, who says he was motivated by race, to a Hispanic man like Julio Paez, who, as far as I could tell, is well-respected and a smart guy. And yet Jenny and her group dismiss him as being a pawn for white people in town. That still didn't make sense to me. So I called up Federico Pena again, the former mayor of Denver, who worked with Jenny way back in the day. He hasn't kept up with the goings-on in center since the late 70s, and he certainly didn't know anything about the allegations of voter intimidation connected to Jenny's group, nor did he believe them. I described the dynamic between Julio and Jenny's group, and he just kind of chuckled a little bit. I've worked with groups all over the United States for many, many years, and like any group, whether it's it's a group of Italian-Americans or Irish-Americans or African-Americans, and it's certainly true of Latinos, uh, you know, factions uh, emerge, particularly when a group begins to make advances, and then others emerge and say, well, maybe I can do this, or I think I would kick it in a different direction. And mostly that's healthy because, you know, groups are not monolithic. That's healthy. Pena says that shows that the Latino community has matured in terms of how it wields political power. 
there is a, a level of sophistication that has been reached by many, many groups over many, many decades. And so I, I'm not surprised to learn that there are some cliques and factions in the Latino community down in center and, and elsewhere. So in a way, today's fights are a sign that Jenny's movement to get Hispanics more political power has worked, even if that means that the people who benefit now from her past battles don't want the same things that she does. That was CPR's Nathaniel Minor. See photographs and more from Center at CPR.org. You're hearing music from Poddington Bear. This is Colorado Matters. During the dog days of summer, Coloradans cross their fingers that those refreshing afternoon showers will come, especially now as wildfires rage. What can we expect this year? I reached meteorologist Mike Nelson. He's with the Denver Channel. He's also the author of the Colorado Weather Almanac. And I asked him about what's generally called monsoon. It's a little bit of a misused term here. Uh, the monsoon means a seasonal wind. And we oftentimes uh, think of the Indian monsoon down in the Indian subcontinent when the wind shifts and they get all the heavy rainfall. Yeah. Uh, here, our summer monsoon, if you want to put it in little quotes, is uh, kind of an annual thing that we see develop in July and continue into August where we uh, get a uh, kind of a slow, moist flow coming in from the Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. It comes flowing across the uh, nation of Mexico down into Arizona and New Mexico and then into Colorado. And it manifests itself in afternoon thunderstorms that don't bring large hail and tornadoes as much as they bring heavy rainfall. And often relief from fires? Yeah, oftentimes relief. And we really could use one this year because we were so dry coming out of the uh, winter season. A year ago, we had very little drought across the state. And now most of southwestern Colorado is an extreme drought. And so a nice soggy monsoon would be very welcome. Well, what are we expecting this year in terms of monsoon, again in quotation marks? Our monsoon, I think, is going to kick into gear here shortly. I think maybe even by the end of this week, we're going to start to get into uh, more of a daily dose of afternoon showers and thunderstorms. It's been happening last couple of days down over southwestern Colorado, and it uh, is gradually going to spread farther to the north and to the northeast, not only the mountains, but including the Denver area. So I think the second half of July into August, we're going to see more of the uh, afternoon storms that bring more than just wind and lightning. They'll actually bring some rain. Does this trend differ from year to year? I mean, are there some years where it's much stronger and some years where it's less strong? Can you put it into context for us? It does differ, and it actually relates to El Nino. We normally think of El Nino as more of a wintertime uh, weather maker for us. It tends right. to favor the southwestern part of the state with heavier snow. But we have seen some correlation that when ocean temperatures in the Pacific are warmer, we do get a stronger monsoon. It would sort of make sense if you think about it. If you had more heat, you'd have more humidity down in the tropics. And if you draw that into Colorado, it should give you a stronger summer monsoon. And uh, we're kind of in a neutral phase right now, but tending toward a little bit of a return of El Nino. And so I think that may favor a little bit better monsoon season for us this year. Okay. Now, these storms can also bring lightning, which we know is a fire trigger. So you, you mm -hmm. kind of have to balance out like the lightning they bring versus the moisture, don't you? Yeah. One of the, the problems that you have is thunderstorms have thunder and lightning. And when you have dry forests, then you have lightning-caused forest fires. But 
Uh, the difference between storms that are producing just a lot of dry lightning and gusty winds, uh, which are really a problem, yeah. monsoon storms tend to not only have the lightning but a lot of heavy rain. And consider this, that one inch of rain on an acre of land is 27,000 gallons of water. Mm. And you start to, to put that into context of you know what some of these big airdrops can be, and you're talking about thousands and thousands of those big tankers dropping on a fire. Mother Nature can do it with simply one good thunderstorm. What role might climate change play in future monsoons? Well, it's uh, not necessarily a clear-cut correlation, but again, it would make sense that if you have a warmer ocean, mm -hmm. you're putting more moisture and heat, more energy into the climate system, you would probably have a stronger monsoon. However, that's a short season, generally mid-July through August. The bigger problem we face with climate change is that we're going to see more drought. And that only makes sense because drought is not just a matter of precipitation, which we get on average of 16 inches a year here in Denver, but it's also evaporation. So with a warmer climate, even if you still got the same amount of rainfall, you'd have more drought because you'd have greater evaporation. Do you talk a lot about climate change as a TV meteorologist? You know, in the two and a half minutes that I get to cover the whole nation uh, and all of Colorado and, and make a couple of jokes with the anchors, uh, there's not a lot of time to do it. I reference it a fair amount. I do a lot of work on social media, write a lot of articles on my Facebook, and uh, I also do a lot of speaking about it in the public. I've realized that generally in local news, having an exclusive is a really good thing, but if I'm the exclusive Weathercaster talking about climate change, that's not so good. Hmm. Mike Nelson, before we go, I wanted to ask you about high country tornadoes. Uh, there was a lot of attention paid to a tornado that actually went through a fire in the mountains not too yes. long ago. I had always associated tornadoes w with the plains and not with the mountains. Disabuse me of that perception, will you? <laughs> 90% of our tornadoes in Colorado, which we typically get about 50 or 60 twisters a year, 90% of them occur east of I-25. They're not unheard of to be in the mountains. Uh, in my almost 30 years here, I've probably seen a half a dozen up there. Not personally, but I've been working when they've occurred. And the reason we don't get as many in the mountains is that the rugged terrain up there disrupts what we call the rotating supercell thunderstorm, which is generally the parent thunderstorm of a tornado. The whole storm spins. We don't get those kind of spinning storms in the mountains very often, so they're much more rare up there. But we do get them, and uh, they're generally fairly weak, generally uh, on the, uh, the enhanced Fujita scale, a zero or a one. Uh, however, even a one has winds over 100 miles an hour, and that can certainly rearrange the furniture out on your back porch or take off a fair chunk of your roof if that happens to hit. Colorado never fails to surprise, does it? No, not no. at all. It's all <laughs> we're always uh, humbled by trying to forecast the weather in this state. Thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. It was a good talk to you, Ryan. Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7 and author of the Colorado Weather Almanac. Hall & Oates is the most successful duo in pop history. Catchy hits like Maneater help them sell more than 60 million records. Oh, 
spoke with John Oates, who lives near Aspen, after the release of his memoir, Change of Seasons. It is now out in paperback. Welcome to the program. No, thanks for having me. You have a really deep connection to Colorado. You call this state your destiny. And uh, it began with a ski trip to Aspen in 1968. You write about seeing a young John Denver perform in a bar in Snowmass. Fast forward to the early 1990s when you decided to move to Aspen full time. In the book, you call it a rebirth. Um, what in your life brought you to Aspen permanently? Well, it's it's a bit of a long story, but uh, to to kind of make it short, uh, uh, as the 80s were winding to an end, uh, there, both Daryl and I had uh, seen the writing on the wall, and we realized we couldn't sustain the type of popularity, this mega popularity that we had during that period of time for about seven or eight years. And we both kind of decided to, it's probably better to take a little break, not necessarily, uh, you know, um, we weren't going to break up the band, so to speak, but we just thought it's better to take take a break and see what happens and find a new way forward. Uh, but during that, that exact same period of time, um, I was going through a divorce and I went through some financial issues with management and the people who were handling, handling our business. And quite frankly, I wasn't paying enough attention to the business side of things and running around the world being a pop star. And uh, when it all, all kind of collapsed, I, um, I found Colorado uh, as my refuge. And it really uh, saved me. I decided to leave the East Coast where I was born and you know, spent most of my life, sold everything I had, um, started over again in a little cabin in, in Aspen. And uh, subsequently, uh, after hiking and skiing the mountains and uh, I met a met a gal and got remarried, had a kid, built a house, and uh, really started my life over again. Yeah, therein lies, I think, the, the destiny. Uh, but you wrote that essentially you were broke. Um, you, you had all of the well, all well, of the toys. Well, well yeah. <laughs> let's 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 not get too too. It's it's too easy to say that. I'm I'm really sorry, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was I didn't have any cash, but I had a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and I had a lot of stuff. So I'm talking about airplanes, collection of classic cars, two apartments in New York, apartment, a house in Connecticut, and a condo in Aspen. So I wasn't exactly broke, but um, I literally didn't have any cash. And so what I proceeded to do was sell everything I owned, literally cleaned house and started over again. You were sort of in debt to the record company. Like they had advanced you a lot of money. This is part That's of, correct. yeah, you weren't minding your P's and Q's financially. I think at one point in the book, you write that... You you never really wrote your own checks or had any sense of the money being spent. I never I never paid a bill. I never used a credit card. Or I never used a checkbook for my entire you know young adult life until the late eighties, till the early nineties. To be honest with you, um, when I wanted something, I just called the office and said, "Hey, I want a car, or I want this car, or whatever. Or I want to buy an apartment," and uh, I used just bought it. Um, where the money came from, it was bit of a mystery. And since it was rolling in and such large quantities, I never questioned it. It's a, it's not, listen, it, you know, it seems kind of, I guess, you know, to the average person, it seems crazy and extravagant and, and, you know, kind of irresponsible. And it was, but in the world of music and rock and roll, it's a, it's an age old story. It's yeah. been going back you know, to the beginning of the fifties, you know, I'm certainly not the only artist to have ever experienced this. John Oates, I did love the detail in your book that the first time you were in Aspen for that skiing trip, um, you asked where you could score some pot, and they pointed you to a rundown hotel called the Jer- <laughs> called the Jerome, um, which of course today is like super fancy. 
And That's it, right. in 68, you still saw horses tied out front. Oh, yeah. You know, they used to, uh, there was always a couple guys with, um, you know, usually carrying guns uh, on, you know, in a holster and tying their horses up in front of the J-Bar. And, the, you know, the wallpaper was peeling off the walls. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of a crash pad, really. <laughs> My how things change. You ended up buying oh, a, yeah. a rundown log cabin in Woody Creek um, with a red 1975 Pontiac Granville convertible parked inside inside <laughs> yes well it was in the in the little log cabin that was the uh what was left over from a house that had burned down many years ago um the, it was basically a you know a, a little ranch um with uh you know all run down tons of thistle and a little broken down horse barn in this cabin and you're right inside the cabin was this red convertible uh i happened to ask the real estate agent who was a friend of mine uh, who owned the convertible and he said well your neighbor hunter thompson across the way <laughs> and, uh, i said well okay great i said why is he keeping his car in a piece of property that he doesn't own and he just the real estate agent just looked at me he said it's woody creek you'll you'll figure this out it's a different kind of place. So <laughs> I did learn over the years that Woody Creek is a very unique place in the world. Did Hunter wind up getting his car out of your home? Well, we were going to use that little cabin as our um, to live in while we built the rest of our house. And when the day came when the carpenters were arriving to start work on the cabin, um, the, the car was still in there and I had left numerous notes, but he never responded. So I jump-started the car. Luckily, it had the keys in it. Uh, and uh, I drove it up onto his lawn and parked it in, his, in front of his front door and just left it there. And 20 years went by. He never said a word to me. Were you friends? About, yeah, we were, we were. Well, we were casual friends. Mm-hmm. We didn't hang out a lot. It was cool because, you know, he, he kind of uh, slept during the day and worked at night. And I kind of worked during the day and slept at night. So, um, but we'd get together on social occasions. He was always very, uh, very, uh, very nice. And uh, I think if he liked you, he was really a, a real Southern gentleman. You know, he's, he was a guy from Kentucky. And I, I, I think I kind of saw through the, uh, the Hunter S. Thompson character, you know, which he liked to be. And he enjoyed being that guy, you know, with the whiskey and the cigarette holder and the motorcycle and, you know, and the drugs. Uh, that was his, his, persona and he could be that but he could also be someone else too so um i enjoy i enjoyed him and i've always a big fan of his writing and i know that you would watch football games together it, it was about this yeah. this same time you know this time of real transition for you that you shaved off your famous mustache john oates um, yeah and it you, was a, a wholesale life change you devote a chapter in the book to this what what prompted you to shave it off <laughs> Not many people vote, uh, devote an entire chapter of their book to their mustache, um, but I felt it was warranted. I, um, it, 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 in a weird way, it kind of represented the guy I was, the guy who made all the financial mistakes and was irresponsible and got a divorce and, and just really didn't pay attention to things. And I think uh, that, that whole financial collapse and the divorce and all the things that happened to me were just a, a huge wake-up call. And it was kind of like... Get get your get your act together here, man. This is like you know you you know you you gotta you gotta grow up. Basically, growing up, and the mustache in some weird way was symbolic of of that other guy. And I didn't want to be that other guy anymore. And uh, so I shaved it off. I guess it was kind of like a ritualistic cleansing of sorts. <laughs> I was surprised to learn that the success Hall and Oates has had did not happen instantly. I mean, in the early yeah. 70s, you recorded three albums for Atlantic Records, but they didn't s- mm-hmm. sell very well. And you had no hit no, singles didn't. out of them. 
No, we had a semi-hit with a song called She's Gone, but it really wasn't a big, big hit. Um, you know, interesting, and I look back at that period of time, and I'm just, I feel so blessed and fortunate to have come up in an era where artists were allowed to develop and make creative mistakes, which really is essential for any creative person to try and experiment and do things and fail. Uh, I think you learn much more from failure than you do from success. And fortunately, we had a situation where the record company stuck by us because they believed in our talent. And it wasn't just about the uh, chart numbers or, or sales numbers. So um, not un very unlike, uh, unfortunately, the environment that many young musicians find themselves in today. Mm. Well, your first big hit in 76 was the song Sarah Smile. When I feel cold, you warm me. And when I feel I can't go on, you come and hold me. It's you and me forever. I can hear some of that ballroom in there. What do, what do you think of that song when you hear that 40 years later? Well, first of all, I think it's really a, an amazing, amazingly simple, elegant song. Um, but what I uh, what I really hear is how young Daryl's voice sounds. Uh -huh. uh, it sounds like little kids singing to me. Um, and uh, it's just a wonderful song that, uh, you know, is, is here again, simple in its elegance. I do want to ask you about the first song we heard, Maneater. I understand that mm -hmm. you got you got the idea. You write about this in the book after meeting a woman at a bar in New York. Yeah, um, it was a place we used to hang out. It was kind of a trendy '80s kind of place. A lot of actors and models and musicians would hang out there. And uh, she was a big time fashion model. She came in and basically just in, incredibly, you know, took over the room with her presence. But at the same time, she had a foul. She had a really foul mouth, and she started began to tell these really disgusting, dirty jokes, which I thought was really interesting. And, and I kind of, I, I heard great beauty was uh, in, a high, in a high contrast to her filthy vocabulary, which I thought was cool. Uh, and uh, I decided that she would chew you up if you ever, you know, got a chance <laughs> to be with someone like that. Mm -hmm. And I had no, no, I had no. Uh, you know, romantic relationship with her at all. Uh, she was just a, you know, she's just this thing that happened. And uh, I, you know, extrapolated from there and uh, began to write, oh, oh, here she comes. Watch out, boy, she'll chew you up. She's a man eater. Uh, and then Daryl and I got together and we finished the song. We have just about 30 seconds. So very briefly, I couldn't help but notice that your home in Woody Creek is for sale. Are you, are you leaving Colorado? Yeah. Well, I don't plan on leaving Colorado, but I need to downsize. Uh, we've we've uh, migrated uh, east toward Nashville over the past uh, seven or eight years. Uh, our son lives in uh, D.C., and uh, my father's still in Pennsylvania, and he's 94. And I wanted to be a little bit closer to them, and uh, my travel... My travel schedule is so intense at this point now that Nashville's central location just makes it a lot easier to travel from. So um, that's where we are right now, and uh, I love Colorado. I never want to leave it, but just having two huge homes and a ranch in Colorado with uh, all the things that go on with a ranch is just uh, really just too much. I want to simplify it as, as the years go on. That is John Oates, our conversation from a year ago was recorded when he released his memoir, Change of Seasons. It's now out in paperback. And Oates' Woody Creek Home is still on the market. Okay, that's it for us today. We'll be with you tomorrow from Main Street in Grand Junction 
For now in Centennial, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.